one of the mantras in in the crypto world that be, that you'll see a lot is NFA and DYOR. Not financial advice, do your own research. And people say it all the time for anything they've ever recommended. And really it's because there still is a sophistication that people have to know a little more than they think in order to to protect themselves. More than $3 trillion. That's the current value of the cryptocurrency market according to CNBC. But not everyone is convinced that Bitcoin and NFTs, usually popular digital collectibles, deserve the attention they have generated. Skeptics believe NFTs are at best a celebrity-inspired game, and at worst, a scheme to trick buyers into thinking they own something they do not. Hello, I'm Bruce Berman, your host. Welcome to Understanding IP Matters, a podcast series that looks at the role of intellectual property rights and how creators become entrepreneurs. Sam Ewan tracks how digital creations are crafted and sold. He says that NFTs or non-fungible tokens make collectibles and other financial assets fairer to price and easier to trade. Ewan believes this is only the beginning. As Senior Vice President of Coindesk, a sort of Bloomberg for the crypto world, Ewan helps to generate 13 million visits monthly. I grew up in a household that was very critical of advertising, he says, recalling his father, a lecturer on consumer culture and a graphic artist. In the 1990s, Ewan tracked the emergence of hip-hop and the internet culture. He has been writing about the awkward relationship between digital ownership and IP rights. The line between brand and NFT creative use is blurring, he says. Determining whether an IP owner or creator has the right to sell NFTs can be troublesome. Understanding IP Matters spoke to Ewan virtually from his office in New York. I think the movement towards a verifiable ledger and a kind of immutable record of transaction, whether those are on the, on the asset and currency side or they're on you know, the art and provenance side um, is a innovation that I believe once out of the box, you can't put back in. There's too much value, too much excitement and too much psychology about why this does work to then assume that at some point, well, maybe we all got it wrong and we're going to go back. And so I think that um, understanding that this was born out of a time where people looked at the financial crisis and they said there's tremendous inequities in the system and how can we reimagine that? And that's really the genesis of Bitcoin and everything that came afterwards. Um, it, it was something that I think people were waiting for and they just needed the right sort of accelerant and the financial crisis of 2008 was that. Um, but out of that came just a remarkable opportunity to look at how both technology and assets and ownership were going to be reimagined for a digital age. Well, one of the knocks against NFTs in particular by traditional asset owners is that buyers don't own anything. They don't own, well, they own something, but they don't own a license to the underlying asset. It's sort of like a, like a copyright or trademark. There is a, an intangible asset there. But with the code, you just own some code. It's a very hard thing for people to get their head around. 
what is NFT pricing based on? Well, I think first you have to look at actually what an NFT is. And an NFT, really, it's a, it's a token. It's a representation. But the fact is that NFTs really are just a container that you can put anything into. What you're putting into is something digital, right? It could be, it could be code. It could be an entire movie. You know, but anything that you put into it is then sort of minted on the blockchain to say that the person who owns this has ownership rights over the thing in it. Now, people can put anything they want in there, so therefore, that's where you get a lot of copyright issue. But the, again, the underlying idea that we have a digital record of ownership that starts at the genesis, and then we see every piece along the way, I think is actually more valuable in many respects than the way we've do, been doing it in the past. Um, but to your question on price and perception, I think the thing that's most interesting there is whether I have a, you know, a thousand dollar pair of Yeezys from Adidas, or I have an Andy Warhol, the, the, the cost of the physical goods are, you know, are negligible, right? You know, right. a couple of dollars of leather and, and rubber and, and fabric or some canvas and some paint, you know, it's what we, what we, bring into those worlds, the representation we bring into sneakers, fashion, art, jewelry, um, real estate, that means that the market sets the price. And so if we accept that in the physical, we should be comfortable accepting that in the digital. You've written that the boom has led to an orgy, the boom in NFTs, an orgy of intellectual property and fractions. What do you mean by that? So what I mean by that is there's a couple of interesting things when you look at digital culture digital culture in many ways especially with younger folks people much younger than you and i it really is about the memification of culture right it's the idea that we can take something and we can just time and time again put a slight text tweak tweak or we can animate it or we can put a color on it and suddenly it's now expressing ourselves in a unique way you know and whether that's a flying cat with a rainbow coming out of its butt or it's elon musk whatever it happens to be we, we, we feel a sense of ownership over the creative delivery of objects that we didn't create the initials of, but we then remixed and made into something else. And so it's really what, what a lot of digital culture um, is based on, frankly, is just the repetition of it and that those repetitions re represent our emotions and our feelings and our sayings and our phrases. So what, with a lot of uh, NFT projects, what happened was because you could put anything into the container, people started putting anything, not really thinking about, oh, what happens when the thing I'm putting is under copyright and now I'm making money on it. And so that's where I think there's been an interesting intersection, which is not the one of one piece of art that one can make the accurate claim it's derivative um, and therefore sort of falls under um, art and creation. But, you know, the folks that are creating in essence, what I sort of call digital storefronts, um, where they're selling product, even though that product might be digital, it's still product. When, when the Meta Birkin project came out, which was in essence an artist who was then creating 102 different versions of a Birkin bag, mm -hmm. which is an Hermes product, sure. and then puts those up uh, on a store, storefront and makes you know, $1.5 million by selling the NFTs of these things, you know, one could argue he's more in the Shopify lane than he is in the Sotheby's lane. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's where I think we, it starts to get, you know, interesting because he literally created a 3D model of a Birkin bag, which they happen to own the IP of that physical model. 
Right. But it, it helps the IP owner that, uh, that the, the NFT exists. The NFTs are a kind of a brand extension, are, are they not? It depends on which side of the fence you, you, you fall down on. Nike, you know, who really is very protective about their logo, and, and in, rightly so. They don't want, you know, someone wearing, a, a, you know, a Nike uh, sweatshirt or sneaker doing something that is against their ethos. And so they, they protect that stuff pretty, pretty um, seriously. There are other folks who look at any promotion as good promotion and therefore will take it. But I think when going back to the Meta Birkin example, when someone's making millions of dollars off of what in essence is your shape, your design, your trademark, I think it does cross a line where a cease and desist had to come uh, because they, they're saying if anyone's going to put out a digital version, we, it should be us as Hermes. And fast forward five years when we're living in a, in a much more mixed reality world between some quasi-metaverse and some real, real world, when you can connect your digital to a physical, uh, your, your physical product to a digital product, ownership of that shape actually becomes even more valuable. Your background uh, gives you a front row seat to the development of the metaverse and Web3. Uh, you were a creator, a marketer, an analyst, uh, and you're deeply involved in the evolution of hip-hop in the 90s, which became not only music, but a culture unto itself. Where do you see blockchain, crypto, NFTs evolving and fitting in? Hip-hop was, a, was, a, was born as a derivative medium. So people in parks taking two records, cutting them back and forth and making an instrumental track so that people could rap over it was already people saying, I'm creating something new out of an original, an origination piece that I didn't create. And so the idea of remixing and sampling and flipping and, you know, turning the, the, the tempo down or the bass up, all of that is very much what we see in NFT culture right now. So I really look at the kind of grandfather of NFT and meme culture as being coming from hip hop. Um, when I look at NFTs, I think that there is a underlying technological layer, which I think is brilliant and is going to really revolutionize so many different industries and experiences we have as humans. Um, but I also see that we're in an unbelievably frothy market where people are, you know, spending $35,000 for a digital frog and not necessarily understanding that true utility, true value may be, it may be harder to keep long-term than we're seeing right now. I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that the large majority of the current NFT projects are overvalued and will, will at some point plummet in price. But I think there will be some key ones that are going to represent this sort of seismic shift in the culture industry. And these will be not only the art and artifacts of, of this, this revolution, but also that a lot of it will be the IP and the future IP of storytelling, brands, uh, hospitality, whatever it may be. And so that's the thing I'm most interested in. Mm-hmm. Social media plays a role, certainly, in, uh, in meme stocks and, and in culture now in general. It's, it's incredibly powerful. To what extent does social media play a role in crypto and, and, and other digital assets? There's two ways I think I would look at social media in relation to blockchain and, mm-hmm. and Web3 crypto. One is, at, for whatever reason, social media has kind of always been the default place where people are talking about things. It becomes a digital message board. So it can be Twitter, it can be Reddit, it can be Discord, um, it can be TikTok, 
people are talking about this world there. And so, you know, the, we are seeing that a lot of the genesis of a lot of the hype around crypto, not always for good, um, has come from these social media platforms. A lot of the current NFT craze started on Clubhouse mm -hmm. during the pandemic because people just wanted to talk to each other and they talked about the things they were interested in. So it might have been Top Shot, you know, digital sport NFTs, or it might have been the Board Ape Yacht Club because people were just talking and then and it got more and more people into it. So we, we've seen a lot of those conversations happening across these different social media platforms. And I think it just becomes the place to shout the loudest and get the most attention. And if you're good at, at gaming that social media world, you can create a fair amount of value for either the own your, the products you're, ho you're holding or for others. And we are also seeing the rise of kind of the crypto and NFC influencer in that respect. The thing that's, that is most interesting for me, and I think this is where, where Web3 starts to show its, its, its teeth, is that if I am on Twitter and I have 2,000 followers and I go to Instagram and I have 1,000 followers and I go to TikTok and I have 300 followers, every single one of those, that follower count and that relationship is being dominated by the platform and then monetized by the platform. But the idea that simply by utilizing a crypto wallet as an identity across all Web3 platforms, I can sign into any Web3 platform that accepts any Ethereum token with a MetaMask wallet. And it's always my wallet. And I can decide what happens. But, you know, imagine a future social ecosystem where any platform I plug into, every follower I've connected to already is there. Because I then own my relationships and my data as opposed to Instagram owning my data and saying, if we deplatform you, you're out of luck. Right, right. So Web3 suggests kind of a new iteration from Web2, certainly. Uh, kind of internet related decentralization so you can't you have more control over your content your relationships your data some folks say that the web 2 companies will become web 3 companies what do you think do you think that's going to happen or, or are they going to sort of be phased out into a web 3 world they can't exist in a web 3 world or can they well what's, what's interesting if you look at web 1 right. web 1 was pretty decentralized Mm -hmm. Anyone could put up a web page as long as they had an internet connection and could find some server right. and anyone could find it and share it and communicate. And, you know, so, so we really come from a world that wanted that conversation when we started this digital piece. Web 2 was the centralization of it all. Let's right. all do it on Facebook in the same way AOL tried to, right? Um, so what we're seeing in Web 3 is people sort of saying, actually, <laughs> maybe not. Maybe I don't want to be monetized that way. Maybe I want my data or my privacy respected a little bit more. Maybe I don't want to get hacked. All of those things that we've seen time and time again. And so the Web3 is reimagining a bunch of those businesses. Uh, whether or not the Web2 companies can pivot to that is interesting. Because if you think of Facebook and Google... Well, which, Facebook, Facebook changed its name, right? <laughs> it changed its name to Meta, right. obviously around Metaverse. But what they did not say is you own your assets, you own your relationships, right, right, right? You know, it did not say oh, we are supporting any outside NFT project. So that if I own a pair of Nike sneakers that I bought in the metaverse, I can now wear them in meta. So they haven't done any of that work. Because I think Facebook is still in the business of wanting to own its platform, and be able to, you know, they want to sell you the sneakers, right? They don't want you to bring them in. in. And that's where I think it's a big, big challenge. I do believe if you know, Facebook at two plus billion people has the chance if they were the right kind of company 
to, to reimagine themselves as a digital home because they have more more uh, population than any country in the world. So they could figure out a metaverse strategy that felt open, that felt comfortable, that felt respectful, et cetera. I think that there is a chance. I just don't know if their current iteration has it in them to be able to do it. It's a big pivot at this point. Uh, the language of, the blo- of blockchain, non-fungible tokens, decentralized autonomous organizations, hyperledger, it creates a high level of obscurity, Sam. Uh, why all the jargon? Wouldn't it be easier for transition and for acceptance purposes to, to kind of simplify some of this stuff? Uh, I agree 100%. Uh, non-fungible token NFT is not a great name. It's a hard brand. Um, I kind of talk about digital assets in NFTs. I talk about digital collectives in DAOs. Um, I do think understanding what a ledger is, you know, is important because I think that's, again, that's the, the true idea that something is immutable and you cannot go back and change it is such a, like such a valuable thing. You know, if we, if we go back to the, the idea of ownership and art, I know people who have bought, you know, art off of an eBay and it turns out to be counterfeit. Um, and people are losing money time and time again through buying things that they thought were legitimate and they're not. And so it's not there today, it's getting there. But if we were able to really trace provenance and say, okay, an artist I follow, I can see the fact that they minted this NFT on a platform and I can see every hand it went to until I get to me. And I can know this went through five different people, Um, but I can still see the genesis that it came from this artist that has a verified account. I think there's something really, really powerful in that. And so I do believe that that the idea of, you know, an immutable record is really important, whether ledger is, a, is, you know, or blockchain is the name. Yeah, I mean, I think that that takes, takes some time. But I would say that, that, you know, we also have gotten, you know, very comfortable talking about SaaS, software as a service or CRMs, and not, no one knew those terms 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Or, or the cloud. The cloud, yeah. exactly. So, Talk so about patents for the yeah. moment. I don't know how much you know or are comfortable with patents, but the patent world has been trying to monetize uh, assets, uh, rights for, for years, and they do through licensing. But as you probably know, licensing and patents, particularly tech patents, is highly contentious. It's, it's very expensive incredibly inefficient. It's not a great system to share inventions. Um, will NFTs and blockchain facilitate a better sharing? Uh, there's an understanding of provenance, there's transparency, there's efficiency of transaction, all things that don't exist with patents currently. Well, what's your thought on that? I think it's an interesting question because on the one hand, really the genesis of the blockchain and the ethos behind it is very open source. Mm-hmm. So the idea of owning specific, you know, modules or nodes or, or behaviors, I think is one that is a little antithetical mm-hmm. to the core kind of blockchain um, uh, religion, if you will. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do think that one of the things that's been very interesting is to look about the idea, idea of IP and ownership and, how one can use something that you've been involved with. And so the, the examples that I like to use, and I think there's, there's you, we can look at three different NFT projects. And I think they start to explain the variety of how people are thinking and acceptance. Uh, 
And, and, and again, there's a million ways to think about this across DeFi and, and, and uh, across, you know, more finance and asset allocation and all that stuff. But, but I think the NFT space is the one where this is sort of, for me, the most interesting. So we've all probably heard at this point of CryptoPunks. Mm-hmm. CryptoPunks is one project. Um, that project uh, from Larva Labs has basically come out and said, you own the digital asset of a unique punk. There's 10,000 of them. You know, whether it has a mohawk, whether it's a female, whether it's a, uh, you know, an alien or not, whether it's smoking, not smoking, you have your, your unique version of it. But you only own that asset. You can't really do much with it. The IP still resolves back to, to Larva Labs, right. right? Then you look at something like the Board API Club, which says, Yuga Labs, we own the entirety of the general IP. But for every board ape you own, you can do whatever you want with it for your specific or for as long as you own it. So the idea is, again, there's 10,000 apes. There's 20,000 mutant apes. Mm-hmm. There's another, I think, 10,000 board ape dogs that are the companions to these apes. And each one of those, if you own one of them or five of them, if you wanted to create an animated series with five you owned, you didn't have to pay anybody anything for rights because you actually own those. And we're seeing books and cereals and drinks and all these things come out of people who are owning specific uh, uh, sort of assets within this class. And they are then saying, great, I can now have, I have something that I can monetize if I happen to be creative enough to do so. What if they issue another 100,000? That would dilute the value of the existing apes, no? I'm not saying they, they, they couldn't, and they, and they may. I think mm-hmm. they, coming out of the ethos of scarcity is the value, I think, recognize. And, but, but, but they have, you know, if you, have, if you were a board ape holder, you were airdropped, meaning given for free the opportunity to create two mutant apes out of the ape you, each ape you owned. Mm-hmm. And those were given to you for free. Those apes, if you went right now to, to purchase them, the cheapest one that I've seen is about $35,000 right now. Wow. Wow. So, so, so literally, they, they gave to their community, but, they, you know, and of course, they take a royalty on every sale, right? So, so it doesn't hurt that, that the ecosystem grows and grows and grows, and they continually get royalties of it. But they've continually, they've been very good at continuing to add more and more value to the IP owners, as in, I own my individual ape, what does that get me? And granted, there's some people who own 100 apes. So imagine that, you know, you suddenly have a fortune. So it's partial IP ownership or license? Well, the way they look at it is it's ownership of the specific image of that ape. So it, so in all of its combination, right? Is it gla- right. In glasses, a hat, a vest, a this. If, once, if you changed it to make it another ape, you don't own it anymore. Ah. So, yeah. And so it's really, the, it's, it's your specific ape and its, its features. Now, the, the third thing, so, so we have now two models, right? We have, we have the, the CryptoPunks, which you don't own anything. You just have the artwork, right? In the same way that I can't go with the Warhol I own, start making, you know, a brand out of it. Well, then there's the Bored Apes, which is that specific instance I own of it. And then I look, the, the final one, which I think is really interesting, is, um, is something that is, is a project called the Na- like called Nouns. And what Nouns are is there again this a- these avatars they're very 8-bit looking very kind of old computer game uh in their style um and the way that that the nouns group did it and these are very expensive and very valuable and they release one a day there's one noun released per day and anyone can buy it but often the prices are the hundreds of thousands of dollars mm-hmm. um and by buying it you get into a collective you get into the nouns dao and the nouns dao uses its money to do other things including buy other art and help support other projects and invest and all that 
But the thing that they did, which I thought was really fascinating, is they released it under a Creative Commons no rights reserve license. So they basically said anyone, whether you own it or not, can do anything you want with it. And there are people who've come out with t-shirts and hats and other ones have brought into games and someone put you know there was that glasses from one of the nouns character was in one of the super bowl spots this past this past year and you don't have to pay anything for it to do it because in their mind it, it goes to an earlier point you made which is just getting the nouns out there brings up the value, the value. of everyone who owns right. a noun because you actually have the, the ownership to say hey there's only 200 of these so far have been released i have one and i own it so i want to see nouns everywhere because it only adds more value to the, the origination owners. Right. So it's kind of uh, an open innovation uh, approach to uh, right. to NFT. Exactly. They're, they're completely public domain from the moment they come out, which I think is pretty fascinating. You know, I, you can go tomorrow and set up a shop selling nouns gear on Amazon or, Spotify or Shopify, and they're going to support it, not, not try to take you down. Interesting. Now, millennials and Gen Z, they have a much higher comfort level They've grown up with games like The Sims. They don't see Meta as lawless, but as a relative safe space where they can operate more freely and anonymously with clearer rules, actually. Is that something that people miss, uh, older people who aren't as attuned to the metaverse? What role does that play? So I think there's a couple ways that people think about this. So there is one, just there's the fact that you know, and I think you brought it up in one of your first questions, just the idea of physical ownership versus digital ownership. Right. Right. But I think about my nephew who's 16 who plays Forza, you know, a driving video game. And has probably spent $100 just buying different skins that he can put on his car. Maybe he wants to be, uh, you know, a McLaren today and tomorrow wants to be a Ferrari. And each one of those may cost him $10. And he's very comfortable, not only comfortable, but he, from his value set, the idea of, oh, Am I going to go, you know, out to the movies with my friends or am I going to buy, you know, a t-shirt to wear? I'd rather put in something that, that's intangible because it means when I'm in my game and maybe I spend 15 hours a week in that game, I get to represent myself as something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that, that younger folks are much more comfortable with the idea that, that the thing you buy can be intangible. And I think that, that's the first piece of it. I also think they're, they're much more comfortable supporting creators. So the, guy, the idea of having a direct relationship, you know, that I can follow someone on YouTube who, who, you know, or Instagram who happens to be a musician and then they're playing in my town and they're selling tickets directly to me that I can say, oh, I'll just, you know, I'm going to support them. And show, part of showing that support is I'm buying a ticket to the show, I'm buying merch when I get there, whatever it is, not needing to, to and frankly, often being... Um, upset about it going through a live nation that might have a 25% fee on top of it. You know, they're, they'd rather go straight to the artist and support them. Um, whereas we might actually find comfort in saying, Hey, this sort of shady place to buy tickets or like the merch on the table in the back of corner of the club. But, you know, I might want to go to Amazon instead or you need an intermediary. You know, right. Right. I want Ticketmaster Cause at least I know it's real. Um, I think they're, they're very comfortable to say, Oh, why should, you know, why should we take the money away from the person making it when we can actually support them directly? So my, my question along these lines is, what's that going to do for creators? How are creators going to function differently in, in this world? Or will they? They absolutely will. Mm-hmm. Now, there's still going to be a hierarchy. Right. And, and I think, and, and the hierarchy is two things. It's who are the creators that get the ethos of this world? 
And then who are the creators or their teams who are the best marketers in the world, right? But, but if done well, it completely reimagines the relationship. And so, for example, I was at dinner recently with a very successful photographer in the NFT space. And he had spent years being a, you know, a creative photographer, but his day job was working at, at advertising agencies. And, you know, he was a visual guy. And, and so for, for a long time, he had to just do what the clients told him and this and that. Then he got enough fame, enough recognition where he could go, you know, he could go photography full time. But even still, when a brand or someone came along to commission him for something, they kind of had the creative control because he knew this is how I pay my rent. Now he knows, oh, I can go on super rare, you know, which is an NFT platform and do a, you know, addition of one, I can do an addition of 10. And, you know, if I've curated my audience enough and they, they follow my work and again, I'm not dropping stuff constantly because I would devalue it, right, right. But, you know, but maybe every month I release a new image or a new couple of images. And if every single time I do that, I can make $20,000, $30,000, $50,000 because I've now curated this and sort of people believe in me, you know, it's in, in his mind, it's, it's the sort of the most democratizing moment to be a creator because he's now at a point where he can turn down people coming to him. Interesting. Yeah. He, in his mind, and, and he said this very well, he's, he's like, I've been a creator through web one, web two and web three. He's like, only now, and it's taken me 20 years to get here. Do I have the power to say no? Because I know that, you know, I don't have to do it, but let's, let's go even one step further. What we are seeing, for example, is a lot of traditional businesses trying to glom onto this culture. So we have Sotheby's and Christie's, for example, who are both doing a fair amount of, of art auctions and deals around crypto assets, um, specifically in the NFT space. And even I, I've talked to creators who even say, they, hey, they like, the, they like the, the, the piece on the resume that says that their piece was sold at a Sotheby's or a Christie's, but they would much rather do the deal on their own on OpenSea uh, or on another NFT platform. Why? Because NFT... OpenSea takes 2.5%, whereas Christie's takes 20%. Wow. So, wow. So, so for them, they make more money. They have a direct, they know the buyer. They, they, they have a direct relationship. They can, they can sort of represent that. And it feels a little easier to cut out that middleman. Um, but imagine making, you know, 10, 15, 20% more on the work you sell by not going to the art gallery by not going to the name in the space and partly because you now, again, you own the control to make that decision. And I think that's really powerful. OpenSea, uh, that's the largest, I believe, trading platform for kind of the secondary market, if you will. But is that antithetical? I mean, the whole idea is to trade directly and, and openly and not have to go through an intermediary. How, how does OpenSea negotiate that? Are, are there an intermediary? They're a marketplace. marketplace. And I, and I, yeah. And I think the idea that we're not going to have marketplaces is not correct. Um, and, yeah. and part of that, honestly, is just safety and security. You know, if you and I could make a deal where I could literally transfer an NFT straight to your wallet and you could go, you know, to a wallet and, and send it to me, but I, one of us would be waiting to see right. if we were going to complete the transaction. There are escrow services for crypto. Okay. So, that, so one could do that. But even there, you're still probably going to pay a you know, a little, you know, some percentage in order to do that. And then you still have to assume that the thing you're sending me artwork wise is actually the thing I bought. Right. Whereas, you know, an open sea looks rare, a super rare, rareable. There's a lot of these out there. They're really just facilitating a transaction that says on the one hand art or asset, because really an open sea, you can also buy metaverse land. You can buy documents, you can buy domain names, you can buy a lot of different stuff. Um, so asset on one hand, buyer on, on the other, 
and we'll handle it. And yes, they're taking a two and a half percent fee and someone else might take a 2% fee. Someone else might take a 4% fee. But I, I, I think that's sort of the price of admission in that there still is a fair amount of technology and infrastructure that has to happen um, in order to sort of create that gallery mm-hmm. um, that allows for an easy, simplified transactional moment. But even on, look, even on, a, uh, on uh, an open sea, I can still see every single time that that object has been traded. So just by utilizing their platform, I can go and say, hey, I want to buy, uh, you know, Bruce Berman's photography. I can see that Bruce Berman minted it, right? you know, right. a year ago, and now it's been through five hands. So at least I can still track back and know it's there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, OpenSea is, are they more centralized than some people would like? 100%. They've raised a ton of VC money. They are making money hand over fist right now. But I still think that the idea of I get to set a royalty for the creator that, that they manage that on the contract side, that, that they take their two and a half percent. Okay, I, I, know, I know what it is. Um, but it is, you know, it's the eBay of, of the NFT market today. And I think that it's still easier than trying to do those direct, you know, deals, if you were. Regulation of crypto and uh, NFTs by SEC and other regulatory bodies is somewhat inevitable. It's just too much. It's too much volume, too much value to ignore. And, you know, nations are stepping in and others. Can government regulation coexist with Web3 values? I believe, and I believe a lot of the crypto industry wants regulation. Mm-hmm. And I say that because once we have it, it also establishes it. You know, so it's, so this, this story of crypto is the wild west and crypto <laughs> is money laundering and crypto is destroying the environment all of these things which primarily are not true um you know one can make an arg- a counter argument to any one of those, the, 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 those pieces um but i think that if, if we knew what the rules were then we would be pretty comfortable playing within the rules um that's i think that's something that that we have to reimagine for ourselves which is you know, early crypto was very anonymized and it was very um, much this sort of freedom ethos around let's, let's sort of bring, you know, as many people in, but really let's tear down the traditional finance system. But I think because there is so much amorphous sort of froth around this, it's like the idea that, that I want to know, this is just another legitimized way for me to make money, lose money. Um, transfer an asset, own something, you know, all of those things, I, I, I welcome it. And I think a lot of the community would welcome it. I think it would actually help stabilize markets better mm-hmm. because, you know, you would also know that there was someone who was, um, who was sort of watching out to, to, to set some behaviors that were not acceptable. And I think that's actually the thing I'm interested in. We, we, are, we are getting every day right now celebrities who are talking about crypto on Instagram and Twitter who are not divulging relationships mm-hmm. with it, with projects, platforms, whatever it may be, um, which is very much where we were in the influencer world in 2010. Um, and then finally, you know, folks came in and say, all right, you got to disclose when you're being paid to do something. And now, it, you know, and that changed the relationship with influencers and advertisers and frankly, legitimized the market, you know? And I think now if we, if, if people knew that, all right, if I, promote something that's really a money grab for me, but loses, you know, millions of people some money because it turned out to be kind of shady that there's a penalty for that. I think that that's actually good for the industry um, because I can, or you can today 
go you can you can put you know point to eth in a wallet you can go on a platform and you could create the bruce coin right now and start if you're a great marketer start selling it wow you know and you could create a market out of nothing in minutes you know and without any rules so celebrity and loyalty is really enormously important in well it's well it's it's and some celebrity loyalty influence um but team is actually the most important from the people who know mm-hmm. so so there's there's a, a big camp which is hey let's get rich quick right then there's another big camp which is let's change the world right right and i think that the get rich quick people which you know i mean there's you know there's folks out there who are 18 years old in the same way they were waiting in line to you know flip nike sneakers they're now doing it with nfts and you know if they can make a living great for them but there's a there's a whole group of people who are saying let's reimagine this and 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 i think the the, the support there right the people who you know who love and follow you know vitalik buterin as a god or satoshi you know as a as someone who changed you know the, 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 the fabric of society do so because i think they they believe in it and, and they believe in it in a very core emotional way and i think so that's where i think the people who continue that idea of we can keep reimagining systems that ideally are benefiting more and more people mm-hmm. you know we have 1.7 billion unbanked in the world and they're unbanked because banking systems think they're too much of a risk right as opposed to saying well why should we let someone who just happens to work hard you know not have the opportunity to grow value in their assets and so if we you know decentralize it and put it on their phone or their computer where they have that control you know a bank doesn't get to say no which i think is is pretty magic crypto sam started out as a currency and it quickly morphed into an investment a pretty speculative one uh why do you think this happened Bitcoin in particular, I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, I mean, it happened, look, people speculate on everything, you know? And so in the same way that we saw years and years of people reimagining financial products that really were gamed towards the, you know, the institutions and the firms that knew how to game it, right? right? Derivatives. I mean, mm-hmm. Derivatives, quants, options, whatever those mm-hmm. things, how to repackage things, junk bonds, all of it, you know, were ways for rich people to get richer um what what came out of the financial crisis of 2008 was the whole world was affected by the actions of a relative few who were not who were given license by their government to ruin it (laughs) and (laughs) you know and and so so when you think of it in that respect and then you get some folks who are a little bit you know i don't know if anti-government's the the word but at least we're more skeptical who had the computational and mathematical power to envision a different peer-to-peer relationship around money and who said, Hey, the banks are not great. So what happens if you, if, if you're the bank, right? So going back to your original question, I think when people said Bitcoin was not the first digital currency, there's a bunch before that, but it was the first that kind of got it right with a vision and a simplicity that people started to say, this is something right. And you could, if you're paying attention early enough, you could, with your laptop, just help be part of the process because you were just setting computational power to do, you know, to do the math problems that were mining or that were, were settling transactions. So me on a laptop as, as a nobody with an internet connection and a little bit of technical knowledge, I could start making money. At the time, the money was almost worthless, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's the famous story of, you know, someone paying, you know, 200 Bitcoin for a pizza or whatever it happened to be. Um, but the fact was, I could do something 
you know, I could sort of use knowledge to earn as a construct and I could figure out ways to sort of reimagine my, my financial relationship with something that also I didn't have to go to a bank to send to you, mm-hmm. you know, that I could be here. Someone else could be in Belgium and they did a service for me and I'm going to send them a Bitcoin back in 2009 worth $20, you know, and, and, and I get to reward them directly to them without anyone except the only people who get to profit off it are the people who settle the transaction. So people who are helping the ecosystem work are the people who also make a small slice of every uh, of everyone, sure. you know. And so it just spreads out the opportunity. And I think so. People just saw, oh, this starts to make sense. What needs to happen to bring NFTs and cryptos a little bit less so into broader acceptance, especially as it relates to intellectual property? I think we're starting to see it. Uh, acceptance has to come through a, a variety of things. So one, there's the acceptance of you know, here's Jamie Dimon at JP Morgan Chase, you know, saying never on crypto two years ago. And two years later, oh, here we have some products you can buy. Right? Right. <laughs> so whether it's, whether it's the Chases and JP Morgan and, and Goldman Sachs of the world, all of whom are in it, whether it's the brands, right? So now, you know, I can go today and I can buy uh, an NFT in the open marketplace for Adidas, for Nike, for Pepsi, for Bud Light, you know, and each of these gives me now rewards. It's, it's the future loyalty program. Mm. Um, but if I am Pepsi and I, you know, and I sponsor, you know, Adele's next tour and I have, you know, 500 seats in every arena set only for the people who hold that Pepsi NFT, you know, talk about a value opportunity. You know, you're, you're able to sort of create value there. So the second piece of it is the brands coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're, we're seeing that and we're seeing some really, really fascinating models. Um, and then I think the third is just, we got to simplify it even more, mm-hmm. but it's going to take just more of an acceptance across, you know, kind of the general business community, the social community, um, and, you know, and, and the banking community for us to sort of recognize that this is the way forward. And I think I told you this when you and I spoke, but, you know, we're in 1999, internet technology, you know, from a timing perspective, mm. right? If you were there in 1999, you would have seen a lot of dot coms that are no longer here today. But you also would have seen Amazon and you also would have seen, you know, not like Google, and you would have seen the, the, the companies that were the underpinnings of the future internet. And we're in that same, same time now where to not pay attention is a disservice to yourself, not today, but five years and 10 years down the road, because there are those, those same companies are being born right now in the Web3 space. And if you're resistant to it, you're just gonna get left behind. Understanding IP Matters has been speaking with Sam Ewan, Web3 analyst, crypto advocate, and NFT educator. This episode concludes the first season of Understanding IP Matters. After a short break, we will be back with a new season of IP stories from creators and entrepreneurs. Thank you for listening. Understanding IP Matters is brought to you by the Center for Intellectual Property Understanding and its supporters. Visit CIPU at understandingip.org. Follow us on Twitter at Center for IP. This episode was produced and edited by Nathan Tower. Content conveyed by this podcast is for informational purposes and does not reflect the views of CIPU or its affiliates.